0: All right, so uh, we will move into our message for tonight. And we were in Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to speak uh, toward a topic that is uh, near and dear to our hearts, but is also one of the most difficult areas sometimes for us as believers, and that is evangelism. But there there is hope in evangelism. And it can be one of the most daunting tasks, one of the most daunting responsibilities. Evangelism is, is, is scary sometimes. It, 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 it's, it provides some, some anxiety as we are having to speak to someone about our faith. And we are saved and we have experienced the, the salvation of the Lord in our lives but sometimes it can be overwhelming, especially when there is some antagonism, when there is some measure of, uh, of a resistance to the gospel. It can be sometimes overwhelming in trying to bring the gospel to someone who is resistant to the faith. And sometimes the most difficult people to witness to are our own family members. Because they know us. They know our history, they know uh, sometimes our weaknesses, and and they know uh, things about us that it can be overwhelming, it can be intimidating, and yet our family members we have some of the best relationships with to be able to share the gospel, we have the best opportunities with, and yet at the same time it can be one of the most difficult things to do, and evangelism can take many different forms. Matthew 28 and verse 18, we we see here as Jesus is about to ascend back up into heaven, he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All power is given unto me, he says. This word power, this is not the word dunamis. This is a different Greek word that speaks to authority. Jesus is saying, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This is another statement to his deity. He's already risen from the grave. He's about to ascend back into heaven. It is another statement that speaks to his deity. But he's speaking to this authority that he has been given from God. And he is then in turn delegating that to his disciples and to us this command is given to the apostles, yes, in the immediate context, but by the inspiration of God's word and the preservation of God's word, this is a command that is given to us. And we are backed up with God's authority. That's one of the reasons we have hope in evangelism, is we are authorized by God to give forth the gospel, to share the word of God to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to share the ministry, to to share the message of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation that we have. So we see that we are, first of all, to go. And this word go, in the original original language, literally means as you are going. And I, again, I took two years of Greek, just enough Greek to be able to use my, my help's. But I can't keep all that straight about participles and aorist participle and all that sort of thing. So I'm not going to be able to uh, wow you with my Greek knowledge because I I don't have enough (laughs) to be able to do any good with it. But my, my understanding is there is a present participle here of as you are going. So that means that evangelism is a part of our everyday life in multitudes of ways. It is as we are going. Where is the first place that we go for evangelism? It's in our homes. It's, it's, it's right where we're at every day in our homes. The first place that we evangelize is our children and those who are in our, our family. That, that's the first place. Now, in Acts chapter 1, in verse number 8, we're told that we're we're witnesses. Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So our going is to begin at home with our family. But then it goes to our Jerusalem. And we know that as, in this case right here, Lafayette, or where your home may be. You may have a different address. We often think of it in that context. Our Jerusalem being the city in which we live, the place in which we live, the place that we uh, maybe work in or, or, or we live in, that we're most commonly um, in and out and about, that might be considered our Jerusalem. But then there's the Judea. And for, for some of us, we think of it maybe as our, our states and maybe the, the surrounding area, other, other areas, other regions nearby. And then there's the Samaria, and then there's the uttermost parts of the earth. And we'll, we'll often refer to those as maybe the nation, and then all around the world, international missions. But all of us are commanded, all of us are given this great commission. To as we go, in our workplaces, in our places of recreation, wherever it is, we are to have a spirit, an attitude, a... A, 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 a motive to share the gospel. How can God use me in this place, in this moment, to be a testimony for Jesus Christ, to share the gospel, to be able to testify of what God has done for me, and to point people to His Word and to the gospel of Jesus Christ that can save their souls? So there is a going aspect in lots of different areas. Now, we live in a world today. Not that we can't do some door-to-door evangelism. Not that we can't go out and pass out tracks on a street corner or do some street preaching. I'm not saying that those are off the table, that we can't do those anymore. That's not what I'm saying. Those methods can be used, but we have found in our culture, especially with COVID, that it is very difficult to get people to open the door and to be receptive to a gospel witness. Not that we can't do it, but I have found through the years that people are more and more hesitant to open their doors to a, a stranger. All of us are probably guilty of hearing the doorbell or maybe you have one of those ring doorbell systems, you have a video camera when they push the doorbell, the video camera shows who's at the door. Maybe you have those for the the porch pirates who come and take the packages. And we've all probably seen the videos of the porch pirates who come and steal the packages. More and more people have surveillance systems, alarm systems. So it's more and more difficult to go to a complete stranger's door, knock on the door, and for them to respond with a receptive, uh, a respect, a receptive heart, with, with hands and, and, and ears open to receive whatever it is. Most of the time... What do we do when there's a knock on the door, when there's a doorbell? We look out the window, and we've taught our kids this. You look out the window. If you don't recognize the person, you tell your kids what? Don't open the door if you don't know who they are. We're hesitant to open the door to a complete stranger, especially if the ring doorbell shows the salesman who's got the clipboard in his hand, and he's got the logo on his hat, and you don't want to talk to him, right? We've all probably been there where we had the salesman, and we got stuck at the door, and he's got his, I, I remember this guy at our old house, he had his, his uh, iPad, and he had it all ready, and he caught me, he caught me, and he had his iPad out, and he was going through, and he was scrolling through, and he was giving me one deal after another, and percents off, and three people down the street have already bought the, the system. And they, they, he will give the same deal to these three people down the road, right? And, you know, you ask him, well, who are, who are the people? What, what, what are their names? And then he's got out his list. I mean, not that we know every neighbor and their names, but they've got that. And so we, we are hesitant. And so people are more resistant. People are less biblically literate. People are less welcoming. Again, not that these, these methods are, are impossible or, or wrong, but we have found them to be more difficult, so evangelism is, in a way, it's, it's a little more creative. I remember the days growing up when we would go and we would knock on doors, and we would go as, as teenagers, we would go on Thursday night evangelism, and we would knock on doors even in the, the dark hours of the winter nights, and even in the, the snow and the rain. And it would be scary sometimes, some of the neighborhoods in Indianapolis, where we would go and we would knock on doors. And there would be times where it was... Uh, you felt like you're taking your life in your hands, and yet at the same time, there would be sometimes a, a, a profitable reception, but we, through the years, we began to find less and less reception to a cold call, knock on the door, and people were not opening the doors, people were using alarm systems, etc., and it became more and more difficult, so We have found through the years, again, not saying that those methods are completely off the table, but we have found that we have to be more relational in our evangelism. Our going often has to take the form of a relationship. I heard a statistic one time years ago that it takes seven interactions with the gospel before a person will respond positively. Now, you know, those statistics are... Based on averages, the laws of averages. We know for some people they are already tender to the word. Some people are very cold. And, but the average, I guess, is, is seven, according to one statistic that I heard uh, years ago. Seven interactions with the gospel before they will literally listen to you and, and, and receive what you are saying. That sounds intimidating, doesn't it? If it takes seven times. But the point is that we have to be relational in our evangelism. We have to be relational. That means as believers, we have to find ways to build bridges, to make connections, to show interest in people's lives, to love them where they're at, to bring the gospel to them. That doesn't mean that we need to be entertainment oriented. And I grew up in an era in the 1980s where there would be the swallowing of the goldfish. In order to get the kids to come to junior church, there would be the guy who would say, okay, if you bring so many visitors or if we have a certain attendance um, on such and such a week, I'd swallow the goldfish. And we did. It was in children's church, junior church, and we hit the high attendance mark or the number of visitors, whatever it was, and I literally watched the children's church worker swallow a goldfish. And I was sitting there as a kid, thinking that is so gross. I will never do that. I, I I can't say honestly that I was sitting there in children's church, thinking, "Wow, what a great soul-winning privilege and opportunity we had." You know, I honestly can't think of a an, uh, of a mindset as a kid. I was more mesmerized and, in a sense, grossed out by the fact that this guy was actually swallowing a goldfish. But there's all these techniques, and if we're not careful, we become very pragmatic. And then we become very entertainment oriented. And then there becomes this method that we use to attract the unsaved. And then we kind of give them what they want. I talked about it a little bit this morning. We give them what they want and then we sneak the gospel in at the end. We kind of give the backdoor approach. And we take the hard truths of the gospel and we kind of set them off to the side. And we kind of sneak in the gospel later after we get them with all the entertainment, and we get them with all the prizes. And again, not that we can't have some candy, not that we can't have some prizes, especially with the young people and, and, and youth group, and not that we can't have some of that. Kids for Truth has the patches, has the standards, has some prizes. Those, those are, are important more, especially for kids. But the point is that we have to be careful that we don't become pragmatic in our evangelism, and then we get a decisionism and we get easy believism and we get people who are just wanting the prize they're wanting the entertainment they're wanting to see the sensational activity the swallowing of the goldfish or whatever it might be they're wanting to see that they're not really wanting to see jesus and see their sin and see their need for salvation I hope that makes sense what I'm saying, but relations, relationships, being relational in our evangelism, is a big part of our going. But we go ultimately with God's authority. All power is given. Jesus says all power, all authority. He is God. He has God's authority and he is delegating a measure of that to us. Not that we are God. Not that we become the Holy Spirit, but we become the channel, we become the the avenue, the tool in God's hands to be the messenger, to be the ambassador, to be the representative for Christ, to share the gospel with God's authority, with his stamp of approval in a sense. We are taking the word of truth, we're taking the word of God, and so the power of the gospel is... With us as we share the word. So that emphasizes what? That emphasizes the need to give the word of God in our going. Not in our technique, not in all of the ways in which we can mesmerize the crowd or get the individual to uh, have the kind of the carrot on the stick where we're uh, telling great stories and our personality and all the things that we can do to get them to like us. It's not all about us. It's about the word of God. The word of God is what is powerful. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. So we go with God's authority, which means we go with his word. Not not, not that we can't share our testimony. And our testimonies are important. And that can be part of our gospel witness and our gospel message. But our testimony is not the same as the gospel. As the word of God. And we'll get into some more of the nuts and bolts of this, Lord willing, as we have time. But we go and we teach. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. This word teach literally means to make disciples. That means that we are going with God's authority as we go, as we share the word of God. Our goal is to see them become a disciple of Jesus Christ to confess their sin, to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but that is ultimately a submission and a surrender, and they become a follower of Jesus Christ. Not a follower of me. Not a follower of us. Not a man-centered focus here, but a God-centered, a Christ-centered focus. I've known men in the ministry who they could get people to... Get saved to make a decision because they had such a winsome personality. They had such a great way and technique in their charisma to bring people to a point where they could get them to say a prayer. But I felt sometimes that it was about them being able to put a mark next to their name. I got this many people saved. This many people were... I would, and, and again, not that there aren't real legitimate numbers. Acts 2 has real legitimate numbers. But I've been around people, and there was a certain newspaper Earl referred to, or someone referred to recently. I think it was, it was Earl. But I remember a particular newspaper. I mean, it was in a, a Bible study that we had with the men. But I remember a, a particular Christian publication. And I would be reading through, and they would have 500 baptisms, one thousand people getting saved, and their church membership stayed at 100 and 150 every year. but every year they would have five hundred baptisms and you know three hundred people get saved. Not, they would have these long lists of this church and this number and this church and this number and and it became about the the noses, nickels and noses and you begin to wonder you know what were they calling those people to? what were they getting saved with, and, and were they truly disciples of Christ, were they truly getting saved and becoming a follower, a true follower of Christ. We've been talking in John 8 and preaching through the the book of John, the marks of true discipleship, continuing in the word and uh, righteous living, freedom from sin. There's marks of discipleship. And many times, sad to say there are people who are making decisions for Christ, But they're not becoming true disciples. What did Jesus say in his gospel message? He said, if any man will deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is not different than if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We sometimes say, well, that's a different message. No, it's the same message It's the surrendering of oneself, confessing one's sin, and putting one's faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We word it a little differently, but it's the same message, the same call to the same Christ, coming the same way in repentance and faith. Jesus said to those people, if you will take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, they knew what the cross meant. They knew what surrender meant. We here in America, we have it so good. Now, it's increasingly not so good. We're facing things that we never thought we had face here in America. But they knew very well in first century Bible times what taking up the cross meant. And we have taken out, I think, some of that in our gospel presentations, in our gospel message. We've taken out some of the hard stuff that this is going to be a denying of yourself, sin, taking up your cross, confessing that I am incapable of saving myself. This is the Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. I remember meeting a man who said, oh, I just follow the Sermon on the Mount. I don't believe in all this salvation by faith alone and Christ alone stuff. He said, I just follow the Sermon on the Mount. And if I follow the Sermon on the Mount, I'm just a good guy. And that really made me get in and study the Sermon on the Mount. And you read there, Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's speaking to our mourning over our sin and our begging in spirit, our poverty of spirit, begging for the mercy of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals with sin. And I I realized as I was talking with this man, as I studied the Sermon on the Mount, this man was missing the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. He couldn't live the Sermon on the Mount because he had not mourned over his sin. He had never been impoverished in spirit for his sin. So making disciples. This is the teaching aspect of the Great Commission. And then of course there's baptizing. Baptize the name of the Father, the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And I believe strongly that this is baptism by immersion. This is not hitting someone over the head with a wet noodle or some dipping or sprinkling or pouring. This is Immersion. This is the best picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It also is the meaning of the word to dip, baptizo, to dip. That means to put in the water. It also speaks to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where we are placed into Christ. We didn't have Christ sprinkled on us. We didn't have Christ dipped on us, or we weren't dipped into Christ. We weren't poured over. I mean, we are placed in Christ. we were placed in the water. This is the baptism that is... The, the, the baptism by the Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the, the Holy Ghost, and it is the public identification with God's people, with Christ. Baptism doesn't save, that's the teaching, that's the making disciples. Baptism is the identification, the public identification, the first step of obedience where we identify ourselves with Christ. That's part of evangelism. We have uh, at least a, a couple more candidates for baptism right here at Berean. It's exciting stuff. The water's going to be getting cold at the Smith's Pool, so we're going to have to get that on the schedule here before too long. Um, but, you know, we, we are uh, excited about what God is doing. We've had some, some people get saved. We're, we're looking forward to another baptism. But that baptism, in a sense, is that putting on of the uniform, so to speak, Sometimes when I'm talking with kids about baptism, I talk about baptism being like you're putting on the uniform. You're already a part of the team, but now you're going to go out there in the game, and you've got to put on the uniform. And you're showing everybody that you're a part of God's team. You're saved, and now you want to live a life of obedience and faithfulness. That's baptism, and it symbolizes the baptism of the Holy Spirit being placed in Christ. Though, it is, though water baptism does not save, it symbolizes, and it's a picture Of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then what's that next word teach? Now this, in verse 20, teaching them to observe all things. This is the word that we get the word didactic from. This is instruction in all of the ways of God, in the whole counsel of God. So this puts a big responsibility on me as a pastor. This puts a big responsibility on us who win people to Christ, who lead people to Christ. Sometimes we take people who get saved and we leave them in their diapers spiritually. We say, "Here's a box of Pampers. Here's a a, a uh, what a, I can't even think of the right word, you know, to to put in your mouth, um, pacifier. Thank you. I lost, I had a, uh, drew a blank there. Here's your here's your your Pampers. Here's your pacifier." Here's some, here's some milk, and then you're left on your own. And We would never do that physically with a baby, with a child. But sometimes that's the way it is in churches. And, and it's important for us, if we have opportunity with young believers or we lead someone to Christ, it's important for us to continue the relationship with them, to help them grow, to nurture their faith. We would never take a child and just give them their diapers and their pacifier and their their milk and just say, well, I hope you make it. Hope you figure it out. We would never do that physically, but sometimes we we do that spiritually, and and there's different circumstances and different things that come into place, but we have so many resources at our fingertips to be able to give the Word of God, and we are a Bible preaching and teaching church. And I make no apologies for that. We have to be under the word of God. And that means sometimes one-on-one, sometimes small groups. And then sometimes it's in the, the corporate worship in, in a, a congregational type setting. But how does a believer grow by the word of God? That relationship continues. We see them saved and we continue to show them the faith And we continue to teach them the Word of God. We continue to get involved in their life and help them in their relationship with God and increasing in the knowledge of God and maturing and developing in their walk with God and their Christ-likeness. Each and every one of us would probably say someone or someones, after we got saved, got involved in our life. And I would say probably in 99% or more of those cases, your growth was directly related to a church setting, someone in a church who got involved in your life and helped you understand the word of God. It could have been a Sunday school teacher. It could have been a deacon. It could have just been somebody in the church who got involved in your life and helped you grow, who got you connected with the word and continued to give you the word of God and mentored and disciples you. And it's really not that hard of a process. Discipleship is really not that complicated. It's literally a relationship with someone. And in conversation, in Bible study, whether it be a formal or an informal setting, it is involving yourself in someone's life and speaking to them the things of God and encouraging them in their walk with the Lord. I can think of so many people in my life, who impacted my life, who connected in my life, who helped me in my walk with God and in my development in my call to preach and desire to to be in, in vocational ministry. So many people. And we have that opportunity from the oldest generation to the youngest generation. We can be instrumental in discipling, in teaching, in fulfilling this fourth step in the Great Commission. We emphasize point 1 and point 2 and point 3 but sometimes we forget about point 4 it doesn't end after point 3 it continues with step number 4 and there are people that we may have the opportunity to continue in this discipleship with we don't have a lot of time but when we think about evangelism we we have to think about some important aspects to our evangelistic outreach When we are sharing the gospel, we need to have an emphasis on the holiness and righteousness of God who created all things. We cannot make the gospel about ourselves and our personality and our technique and all of our charisma and everything that we can do to make somebody come to a point of decision. Really, we have to be careful that it's not about us manipulating to make somebody pray a prayer. We have to be careful with that. Now we can lead them to that point where they're ready to make a decision for Christ and we can help them in that decision. We've got to be careful that we're not manipulating. We're pointing them to Christ. We're helping them to see the holiness and righteousness of God who created all things, including them. They they were made by God and they are brought into light of the holiness and righteousness of God. This is something that is important. This is something that's Lost in easy believism, in decisionism. The necessity of recognizing one's sinfulness and the judgment that comes from rebelling against God. It's important for us to help the person see their sinfulness, their need for the Savior and there's passages that we could go to such as Romans 3:23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God there is none righteous no not one but it's important for there to be repentance that they understand what they are repenting of turning from idols to the living and, the, the true and living God it's important in our gospel presentations that we help people see their need for radical change for a new heart and perfect righteousness okay i know that there's different age groups and different ways in which we help someone see this a young child may not see necessarily radical change in all the ways that an older person would but still it's important that the person that we're witnessing to understand that there is a need for a change. If they continue in the same way, in the same spiritual condition that they are in, what's going to happen? There's going to be hell. There's going to be a separation from God. There's going to be judgment. But there can be radical change, spiritual change, that results in a new heart, a new creation in Christ Jesus. And we are credited, justified, with the righteousness, credited with the righteousness of Christ and justified. Number four, only Jesus Christ has provided the righteousness we need and made the atonement for our sins that satisfies God the Father. It's important in our evangelism that people see Christ is the only way. We often go to John 14 and verse 6. It's a great evangelistic verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's important for us, especially in this day and age in which we live, where there is pluralism and synchronism. Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I can keep doing these other things. I can keep in these immoral sins. I can keep going in this particular belief system. Progressive Christianity denies, number four. Progressive Christianity essentially says that God would never have allowed his son to die as a propitiation for the sins of mankind. Progressive Christianity has a lot of lingo. It's just like the whole neo-orthodoxy from back in the, the early 1900s. Progressive Christianity is damning people to an eternal hell today because it has a lot of the lingo, but it denies justification by faith alone and Christ alone. It denies this point right here. That we need the righteousness of Christ, that we can't earn that on our own, and that Christ made the atonement for our sins that satisfies God the Father. It's important for us, especially when people have a religious background, it's important for us to help make that distinction as we're sharing the gospel with them, that Christ is the only way. I was uh, reading an illustration of a, of a man who, who witnessed to a Muslim, and in that uh, witnessing opportunity, the, the, the Muslim prayed a prayer, and after he got done praying to receive Christ, he said, great, now I have Jesus and Muhammad. I think he missed out on something, didn't he? The preacher was the, the, the man I was reading after. He, he was disappointed, obviously. He, he thought that the man was truly coming to Christ, but he was just adding Christ to his belief in Muhammad and Islam. And so it's important that they see their need for salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And I know missionaries have gone to some of these countries where there's a lot of false religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, and there's a lot of false gods. They believe in many gods. There's a polytheistic or a pantheistic religion. And it's difficult sometimes for missionaries because they just want to add Jesus to their list of gods. They just want to add Jesus to their their pantheistic or their polytheistic beliefs. So this is an important point when sharing the gospel, and then again, there's the necessity of repentance, and this is so important that people understand that there is a evidence, when we get saved, when someone is born again, there is an evidence that they are a child of God, now we can't get the cart before the horse, so to speak, okay, we can't get into this, well, after you show so many things about your uh, seeker sensitivity, <laughs> and after you've been seekers, after you've been sensitive, and you're a, you're showing that you're a seeker, then you can get saved. That's some of the dangers of the church marketing movement from back in the nineteen nineties, and some of the things I talked about this morning in Sunday school with Bill Hybels and Willow Creek, and some of that. And there's even some who have a a a, a view that you get regenerated, and after you get regenerated. Then you can respond to the gospel. So, regeneration takes place before you respond to the gospel. And that's a dangerous thing as well. The important thing is that there's an understanding of repentance that when a person gets saved, there's going to be evidence of that salvation. Just like a child, they have evidence of life, they breathe. I remember when Emily was born, and the NICU came in, and they shoved that, um, whatever that was down her throat, that tube down her throat, I mean, it had been a long day, and it was 1055 at night, and we were exhausted, and uh, Dr. Gomez, I think it was, was there, and Emily was born, and I remember as a first-time father, and they took her, and that NICU took her, and they shoved that tube down her throat. And they pulled that out and they sucked out whatever, that meconium, whatever. And I'm standing there like, what is going on? <laughs> what were they doing? They wanted there to be signs of life, evidence of breathing and life. And they were checking her vitals. And, and then, of course, with all of our kids and how they took them over and checked all the vitals and everything and made sure there were signs of life. And that's really all that we're talking about here with this fruit worthy of repentance, that there's signs of spiritual life. First John talks about the evidences of salvation. Lord willing, one day we'll go through some of those. We talked about that a little bit already in our John uh, series. But as we have opportunity to share the gospel, to evangelize, it is important that we keep these principles in mind. It's important that we keep the Great Commission in mind, that we have this command from God, and with His authority, As we are going, as we build relationships, as we meet people, as we have opportunity, we are looking and praying for divine appointments. And with God's authority, we give the gospel, we share the word of God, we make disciples, we baptize, and then we continue to instruct them in the things of the Lord. That's the hope in evangelism. And we know that sometimes we're just planting. Sometimes we're just watering. But what does 1 Corinthians 3 say? God gives the increase. And sometimes we're the one who is planting. Sometimes we're we're the one that's watering. And sometimes we're the one that's there, in a sense, to pluck the fruit. But ultimately, it's God that gives the increase. And I don't want us to give up hope. It sometimes takes years of praying and witnessing. Sometimes it's family members who we've prayed for and we've witnessed to for 20, 30, 40 years. And they finally get saved. It's important for us to keep sharing the gospel, even when it seems like it's hopeless, knowing that the the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Let's close in prayer, and then Derek will come and lead us in our closing song as we finish tonight. Lord, we thank you for the commission that we have from you to share the hope of the gospel. Lord, to to give the gospel as we have opportunity, as, Lord, you give us divine appointments, as you put people into our lives that we can influence for Christ, that we can share the word of God with, that we can build a relationship with, and, and Lord, speak to them of uh, their eternal, their, their, their spiritual need and, and eternity and their eternal condition. Lord, I pray that you will continue to burden us with, the gospel and burden us for the lost. And Lord, give us opportunities in our homes and our with, within our families, in our Jerusalem's, Judeas, Samarias and, and even around the globe as we support missions and as we have our missions conference in a, another month or so. Lord, give us a greater burden for the gospel. Help us, Lord, even in this day in which there is so much darkness, Lord, even just a little bit of light shines so brightly. Help us to be that light of the gospel. And Lord, may we continue to see More people saved that we can disciple. And Lord, ultimately give you the honor and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray.